the air. Get out of the air. Time stands still for no man, and especially no engineer man, knowing what engineers are like. Bring it up there, large, please, James, please. I think uh, this evening, which is a kind of a nervous time, just a couple of days before the weekend, and that can get people really up, up the thing there. Uh, I think uh, if you will please get prepared in there, James, if you will, uh, I would like to have a. Uh... Are you ready in there? Are you ready? All right. Now bring that on. We'll just bring this a little bit in here, please. Bring it on there. Yes, thank you. This uh, very concerned radio station takes this opportunity at this moment to do a true public service. Uh, tonight we wish to salute your ego, which uh, rarely gets the credit that it should get. Certainly the beauty that lies within you has rarely been understood nor appreciated by those around you. I mean, being such an unbelievable person that you deeply are underneath it all. But due to the rotten, pernicious society in which you live, yes, indeed, uh, your true worth has never been evaluated, nor certainly used to its fullest. And so tonight we salute your ego. One moment here, we'll give you ten seconds to contemplate your beauty. Come on, look at it, man. Don't 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 be bashful. Just once. Let it all hang out. Go ahead. Oh, does that feel good? Just once wallow in uh, self-approval. Go ahead. Stand up and say, I am a flower in a garden overrung with cacti. Yes, I'm a rare crawling gentian in a field of in a field of crabgrass. Now let's here we go. This is gonna be big right at this point here now. Thank you very much. That's so good. that's good enough, Jim. Have you notice even the record that salutes your own ego scratchy? Oh, God. Hey, uh, do you have another one in there? Uh, give me the next cut, if you can. Uh, this would be kind of good. Man has such a terrible time these days, I'll tell you. Nothing works out good. Well, even equally. We have a note here from Melbourne, Florida, which I thought you ought to hear about. Things are it's coming out in the open. Everything is getting very clear now. A mess existed a short time Thursday on U.S. 1 near the Ugali Causeway, or the O'Galley Causeway, the Melbourne Police Department reported today from Florida. A large cement truck slammed into a pickup truck. Okay, that's not much of a story, is it, yet? Except that one important note here. The pickup truck was hauling a full load of chicken manure, resulting in a gigantic four-way collision. It seems that all of that... <laughs> well, now, what happened, see... Was this guy hit this truck with a with a cement mixer there, and the chicken manure went all over the street, and two other cars came along and slid for four miles on this gooey chicken manure. And uh, later on, one of the Melbourne police officers simply 
in his report simply said, it was a mess, I'll tell you. Well, I, I would like to submit that quite possibly that truck with its full load was on its way to a nearby army post, which uh, undoubtedly uh, had to go along for two days without its new supply. Now, uh, for any of you who know anything about chicken manure, you know that it can be exciting. Indeed. Uh, and uh, I have a note here from one of our spies who writes from Vietnam. He says, Shepard, the stuff is still flying. Glad to hear that. He's talking about chicken manure. Uh, speaking of uh, man's problems here today, we'd like to... Uh, this kind of stuff only happens in London. Are you from London? Have you ever been to England? Never been there? Listen to this. I mean, it's right out of a silly Alec Guinness movie. Three burly bandits armed with a shotgun have been routed by three elderly pensioners wielding a handbag, a can of corned beef, and a pair of gnarled fists. It happened at Suburban Manor Park as the thugs fled from a post office with uh, 300 pounds, or $720, stuffed in a bag after shooting and wounding the postmistress. But they did not reckon on the gang-busting trio of Bill Wiggs, Norma Haskell, and partly disabled World War I veteran Harry Hammett, who were arriving in their old car to pick up their old-age pension. One of the bandits told Mr. Wiggs, Get out of my way! Well, this aroused Mr. Wiggs so much that he whacked the bandit over the head with his can of corned beef. It left a fair old dent in the can, Mr. Wiggs said later in his inimitable way. Two of the hapless thugs leaped into their car and fled, but little Mrs. Haskell, who weighs 73 pounds, swept in, swinging her handbag on the third, who was carrying the loot. She grabbed them in a flying tackle. He dragged her ten, years along, ten yards along the pavement, and then Mr. Hammett jumped in, with his fist flying and also one crutch going to help her. The bandit ended up lying helplessly on the pavement with two of them sitting on top of him with the money underneath. They kept him there until the... Bobby's arrived, and they put him in tow. I'll tell you, this is the kind of thing that ruins a man's reputation. Wait till that gets out among the haunts where thugs hang out, you know, and drink their cheap wine and prepare their next job. Wait till it gets back that the... Hey, what happened to Greasy Thumb? And somebody said, what happened to Greasy Thumb? I heard he ain't been around lately. Oh, God, what well, you know, hey, old lady, 71 pounds, just beat him to a pulp. And that ends Greasy Thumb's tenure down on the Soho district. However, uh, this uh, <laughs> this uh, problem here is a problem. Now, we have, uh, here, thinking about this, I have been undone several times by unexpected sources, and uh, not the least of which is uh, my, own, uh, my own lack of uh, various abilities to cope. Uh, I remember, any, any of you have ever played any... Uh, by the way, I've noticed one thing, so I'm going to have to go right really easy on this. I noticed uh, somebody was reviewing Jim Bouton's book, by the way, his most recent book, says one gets the impression, I hope somebody says this louder, he says one gets the impression that the only one who knows anything about baseball is Mr. Bouton. All the players, the umpires, the uh, commissioner, the league, even the record books are wrong. <laughs> well, Alec, that's the way it goes. He joins Mailer. Uh, however, that, uh, that, uh, don't know. Your lack of, of knowledge about a subject should never, never stop you from being didactic about that subject, friends. That's a basic rule of the talk show. One never says, I don't know. 
when Mr. Cavett asks you about the plight of the Japip Indians in southwestern Idaho, one merely maintains, well, whatever you can add live at the moment, but do it with style and verb. And in fact, have you ever heard of uh, Conquest's Law? Never heard of Conquest? You know who he is? Did you ever hear of George Conquest? It's a very famous law now in England. They're quoting it a great deal in England, as a matter of fact. And if you don't know who Conquest is, he's a highly renowned authority on Soviet affairs, as well as a highly renowned philosopher and writer in England. And he writes on special subjects, so you've probably never heard of him. But uh, Conquest Law simply states, and we quote here, one, in fact, everyone, now this, uh, I, get out your pen and pencil, please, write this down, this will appear on the exam, so I'll give you time to make a note on this, Conquest Law. Conquest Law, stated simply, says, everyone is reactionary on things he knows about. Now, think about that for a minute. <laughs> and I will quote Mr. Conquest. His name is Conquest. His name is George Conquest. And he says, uh, in politics, sociology, and literature, he says, the significance of Conquest law is that as soon as the complexities of any public issue are fully penetrated and recognized, in other words, when you know something about the complexities, complexities of a public issue, it is difficult to accept either simple or sweeping solutions. Thus, one always appears to be against, quote, change, or to be, quote, unprogressive, end of quote. Remember, he's a, he's a great uh, authority, a world-renowned authority, by the way, on Soviet law and Soviet uh, and communist uh, doctrine and ideology and reality which means that the more you know about something, the less you tend to accept the slogans. You ever think of it that way, Jim? No, it's very quite true. And, and he goes on to say, he says, the significance of conquest law is that as soon as the complexities of any public issue are understood, of course, you're immediately, you're immediately out because you bring up some bad... Uh, it's, for example, if you notice that in, in, uh, in issues like ecology, now everybody's talking about ecology, but... How many times have you watched a, a, a late-night television show where they have constantly have these boobs on talking about this stuff? How many times have you ever seen a genuine ecologist? It's always somebody like Orson Bean. You notice that? Very sweeping solution. You know, just, uh, <laughs> well, we ought to clean up the rivers. Right. Simple. No problem with that. Uh, Turn off all the power. No problem with that. Of course, that would kill the Tonight Show, too. But uh, nevertheless... Uh, the the thing that the, the thing that always that always uh, is evident is that in fact I even heard one time a, a guy who was a a programmer for one of those shows you know books acts on the show when somebody said well why don't you get a real expert uh, you know why don't you call the Indian Affairs Department and get somebody who spent thirty years studying the Indians and uh, there was a pregnant pause and he said yeah but that would be a dull show. <laughs> well, because anybody who knows anything about anything can't come out with the bland, flat statements. Have you noticed uh, the, the endless number of drug shows that constantly appear? 
they're always applauded in the in the papers. You, know, you can put and you can put the dullest, non-informative drug show on as long as it has five teenagers talking. They'll get a good review from the Post, and uh, it can just mean nothing. Nobody watches it, but it's it's good intentions are often applauded in our time. And I'm uh, I'm just uh, uh, curious. Uh, how often you've watched a drug show? Now, I've watched many, many of these things. I have a streak of masochism in me, and I've watched many of them. And uh, I'm just, uh, I ask a question. How often have you heard a qualified pharmacologist on one of these shows? It's always a cop or a Catholic priest or a sociologist, <laughs> somebody like that. And, uh, you know, what they know about drugs, you can put in your left ear and still not have any hearing problems. But uh, that that isn't doesn't matter, you know. This is a, it's a, it's people with this great so conquest law has a has a great uh, effect on our television and our radio talk shows. The conquest law is that always call somebody who knows nothing about the subject. He will have great sweeping generalizations to make. You know, one of the great uh, <laughs> one of the great uh, cliches of all times is uh, call somebody who doesn't know anything about it, because then you'll bring a fresh view to it. That's right. You'll probably tell you the earth is square, too. Uh, you know, we're drenched in that kind of loud, uh, very loud and usually quite literate, often quite articulate uh, ignorance. Uh, you know, the sludge, of the, sludge of, the, of the quick opinion is with us, right today in, in spades. I mean, it's just pouring out. Of course, this is the, the basic life, uh, in a sense, the, the lifeblood of the talk show. Because if you really did genuine probes into genuine issues, that would leave the Dildocks from coast to coast confused. I mean, I'll tell you. If you really talked about the problems, you know, how complex the problems are, uh, that's why in... in uh, uh, by the way, this is WOR New York. And that's one of the reasons why uh, so many people, you notice that so many people today are buying sloganeering concepts because the slogan is, is, a, is, a, is a nice substitute for thinking. And it's, uh, it's also today, in this day and age, and it's, a, it's an approved substitute for thinking. You know, it used to be not too long ago, interesting, how far down the ladder we've slipped in that. But just a few years ago, people used to talk with scorn about sloganeers. You know, they used to say, oh, man, what a, what a bromide. The guy deals with nothing but bromide, slogans. And, uh, oh, man. But today, uh, if you don't deal in bromides and slogans, you're put down. Well, let's put it this way. The right bromides and the right slogans, you're put down. <laughs> And this is particularly true among uh, the very young, and I suspect the reason is, is obviously when you're very young, you can't have much knowledge. This is a fact about almost any given subject, which in today's uh, lexicon is already, that's already an inflammatory statement because one of the great beliefs we have today is that if you're young, you know everything. Uh, and and uh, this is hardly, uh, hardly, uh, hardly provable scientifically. It can be it can be stated over and over again, but that, you know, one of the things, too, that, that uh, I think a lot of people are not aware of is the general decline, and I happen to have a little knowledge of it because I was recently affiliated with a school, and a school of higher education, I might point out, 
is the general decline in the classroom of actual, I'm talking about actual education. It has declined to the point now where most classes really wind up just bull sessions, really, if that. And uh, right from the very start, almost all classes, the people in the classes are told, well, they're going to pass anyway. There's no failing any longer. And so ultimately, the belief that because a man today, and, and I'm talking about the average student today, spends more time in school than, say, a person of 15 years ago. In other words, he has more schooling caps. But he is then more knowledgeable. Well, this is, a, <laughs> this is fascinating. And once you get really close to many of the schools that have got such great reputations, you realize what a fallacy this has become. It's a true fallacy that the idea that, that years make schooling and classes make schooling is a, is a questionable thesis. And I've argued this many times, but you, you just don't, you can't get away with it today. But it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating problem uh, that, that leads to many other problems. For example, if you don't have knowledge about things, but you do have knowledge about certain things, in other words, most of us have a knowledge of our own country. We may not have a knowledge of the history of it particularly. We may not even have a knowledge of the laws. But we have a knowledge of it. We're Americans, you know. Uh, we know we know what you know what it's like. We know what, it, what things are. We know the good and the bad. Well, if, since you do have knowledge of this kind of thing, uh, you, you tend to be highly critical of it, merely because you do have knowledge. The more you know about cars, the more you're critical of cars. This is a fact. Uh, the more you know about wines, the more you're critical about wines. You agree with that? Uh, the more you know about music, the less you'll accept uh, bad music. The more you, in, in, in short, no matter what the field is, the more you know about it, the more critical you become. And I might point out, uh, if you're if you're the, if you're also one of the literate type people, the the, the uh, modern uh, liberal thinker, the less critical you are about things you know nothing about. Because you see, then that's 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 the liberal tradition. You don't criticize people you know nothing about, or ideas really, and so uh, so you wind up quite often, since this is so, you wind up being extremely critical of a system you know about. Let's say the American system, and very very tolerant of let's say uh, uh, well let's say the communist system, for example, because uh, for one thing. Uh, Generally, most of the people who have followed these traditions of the communist, or whatever the ist is, uh, have really not followed the system itself, but they've followed the slogans vis-a-vis -vis the system. Now, all, all of us know in our own life that slogans mean, uh, mean nothing in actuality. So the slogan that's repeated over and over again about New York, and is believed by many people around the country, Fun City, well, you know, is a joke to people who live in New York City. Well, now, if you didn't know that, you'd tend to accept that would be as truth, you see. So, so uh, you, go to, you go to other countries, and, and you, you get a slogan that says, uh, all of us here, we have all have work. We all have opportunity to rise to our fullest extent of our, of our basic, uh, our basic uh, facts of uh, our talent. We can go to whatever we wish. In fact, we call it man rise to highest point. We have button sisters, man rise to highest point. Here you take button under our slogan system. You go. Well, 
You tend to believe this if you don't try to go to school there. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? The point I'm getting at here is that is this is the danger of slogans and and uh, and uh, I I guess I guess again it's uh, it's uh, it's a problem uh, that uh, we're all faced with it because in one way or another we're all victims of slogans of one kind or another and there's just no way to escape sloganeering. The only thing is though that the more you know about any specific issue upon which a slogan is created, upon which it's based the more you tend to reject the whole concept of the slogan, and hence, you're a reactionary, <laughs> or you're called a reactionary. And so uh, the, uh, the more you know, for example, about actual schools, the less you're inclined to believe that education is the answer to everything. Uh, a person, yes, it's unfortunately true. Uh, the more you know, I'm, I, I'm just curious how many, how many guys, many, many uh, uh, clinical psychologists sitting out there, talk about clinical psychologists, will accept the premise that most people seem to accept today, that love is the answer to everything. Well, right away, he'd start arguing with you what you mean by love. You know? And then, 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 of course, it bogs down immediately into a long, involved hassle. To, lo- to most people, love means the acceptance of themselves. To accept me means love. Nothing to do with accepting you. Uh, <laughs> it's it's one must accept me. And you know that some of the some of the unbelievable crud that's written about love. It's just embarrassing. How about that slogan of that awful uh, Eric Siegel book? I tried to read that book. I uh, I, I I went at it for over a week. And uh, yes, and I'm a I'm a fairly fast reader, as you know, Jerry, and an omnivorous reader. But I went at that Eric Siegel's love story for over a week. You know, I was going to read it. I mean, it was it's part of our time. And by the end of the week, I realized that I kept bogging down towards the middle of the third page, and I and my head would start slowly, you know, it start to I could feel cheesecake beginning to develop around my ears, and so I ultimately I had to realize that this this is a this is, and then then of course the movie was five times worse. If, if Joan Crawford had been 30 years younger, that would have been a perfect Joan Crawford movie. I could just see Joan Crawford and Robert Montgomery. It's just been perfect. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the, the slogan, the slogan, uh, generally, by the way, slogans mean almost the slogan. And this is Shepard's Law. Slogans are almost diametrically opposed. Let's rephrase it. This is Shepard's Law. Slogans are almost invariably 180 degrees at variance with the facts. Try that on for size. And match it up with some of the slogans that you have run into in your life and see if I'm not fairly true in that. Uh, for example, here, well, here's a typical example of, of, the, of the nonsensical statement. Another thing we're surrounded with, we're surrounded with statements that are stated well, but are nonsensical when you're examined. For example, in connection with Love Story, or I brought up Love Story, how many of you saw that, that uh, slogan they had all over town on billboards and that? Uh, being in love means never having to say, I'm sorry. Did you see that? You mean you didn't see that slogan? Where the hell were you guys? <laughs> well, that's that that's been quoted. That's been all over. It was uh, it was on their new on their uh, ads for the uh, 
for the uh, movie and for the book and the whole bit. Anyway, being in love, you'll have to accept my word then that there was such a slogan. And you guys think you're relevant. Uh, the, the, the slogan says, and I quote, being in love means never having to say I'm sorry. Whereas the actual fact of the matter is, it's exactly the opposite of the truth. Being in love means having to say I'm sorry. Think about it for a minute. Just think about that slogan. Now, that's so typical of, of the glop that we're surrounded with. Being in love means never having to say, I'm sorry. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Not only is it ridiculous, it's the opposite. Because you see, this is the, the, one, of the things, one of the things that has always led to so-called commercial love. You know what I mean by commercial love. Let's put it on a blunder thing. Let's say prostitution. Has been that it is, it is sex that does not involve love. Hence, anything goes. And no one has to say, I'm sorry. This is, this is one of the reasons why it's been a continuing thing and will be a continuing thing throughout all time. As a matter of fact, I, I submit to you that the, that the only society that will not see prostitution in it is a society that does not have the concept of love in it. In other words, love, to, to, to fall in love with somebody uh, requires a whole set of, of, of behavior patterns it's which you yourself wish to have, uh, which you, you create. You, it's, it's a whole ambience. It's a whole thing. And the, the sexual part of it is a very small part of it. And there's, there's, a, there's a very, uh, a whole set of stylizations begin to fall into a person's life and existence the minute he really does fall in love. And so uh, he's continually uh, aware of the other person's feelings. He's continually aware of the other person's uh, inadequacies, but particularly weaknesses and, uh, and sensitivities. This is one of the basic facts of love. Do you agree with that, Jerry? So hence, uh, you find yourself, if you're truly in love, you find yourself continually having to say something the equivalent of I'm sorry because you're aware of what you've done to the other person and you're, you really truly are sorry for it. Now, in a, in a situation where love is not involved, one does not say one is sorry. It's wham, bang, thank you, ma'am. That's the end of the ball game. <laughs> and sometimes the thank you, ma'am, is not even there. But the point being here that, that this kind of glop, which is you know, put out in, in, uh, as great wisdom. I don't care who wrote the book, and I don't care what his, uh, his uh, uh, academic credentials are. His thinking credentials are very questionable. Uh, he, always, he, he reminds me very much as a, as a male Rona Jaffe. Uh, but, but nevertheless, and Rona, by the way, has a much sharper wit. That's the thing I must say for Rona, and I know Rona. I think she has a, a much sharper wit and a much nicer turn of phrase. <laughs> than, uh, than, uh, than Mr. Siegel. But, but this, kind of, uh, this kind of glop is around us for It's just around us all the time, constantly. And it sounds, when you hear it, you don't even think about arguing with it. You know, it sounds, somehow it sounds reasonable. Love is never having to say, I'm sorry. 
Oh, what a romantic thought. Yeah, you just go to the violins, you know, to pick up the violins, you know, the music. Oh, no, 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 no I'm sorry. That's the wrong one, friend. <laughs> I said the next cut on the other one. I, I didn't mean the next record. That's all right. Don't worry about it, Jim. But uh, I, just, I just wonder about that sometimes. No, I no, no, no. That's all right, Jim. Don't, don't worry about it. It's my fault. I, I before I see when you have played that, that I'll, I'll explain on the air, which is always dull to the listener. You remember when you played the scratchy cut, and I said go to the next cut. I didn't mean the next record. Okay, that's all right. No, no problem. No, don't, don't worry. We're not going to have any more records, so it's okay. So that's that's a good way to solve it. But uh, nevertheless, I'll tell you, I've thought about this so often because uh, I I. I, I think, too, that we, we tend to take, and I guess maybe this is part of the democratic system. I don't know. I, 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 this is, this is quite, uh, quite murky. But uh, we take a man's personal experience and hang-ups and problems as universal today, too. I've noticed that. And so, so I will read, I'll continually read books or watch plays uh, particularly uh, Broadway plays, and most particularly off-Broadway plays. And you'll see very specific personal things and uh, events, hang-ups, propositions stated on the stage, but rarely presented as just a personal one-man's problem. It's usually considered a universal problem. In other words, today we have we have well you, you run into the, the the homosexual theater is 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 a very specific problem, and I'm not putting down anybody who's involved in it or has the problem or even if you don't wish to call it a problem that's your problem too, uh, so I'm not going to put it down or say one thing or the other, but it is a specific thing and it it really doesn't relate to the larger experience of or possibly even the minor experience, and if you wish to even argue that. It does not relate to the larger roof of man. It really simply doesn't. Uh, and, and so, and yet it's, it's really referred to as that. You take, you take for example, the, uh, uh, there are other, there, there's various ethnic theaters in which uh, the, the very special problem of one ethnic group is often related to be the problem of all of mankind. And uh, this is not so. It simply isn't. It's a very hard. For example, I suspect that, that here in New York we have a tradition of the domineering mother, which runs through many of the plays in the, the play on the New York stage. The domineering, evil-destroying mother, the all-enveloping mother figure. Well, I submit that this is not a universal problem. There was a powerful father. Now, I, I, also, I also suspect, too, and this goes even further, that most people come from a background, most people come from a background where neither was true. <laughs> That's right. It's possible, you know, to have a, to have a, a non-aggressive a non, uh, mother and a recessive father. How do you handle that when you're writing a play, then? And I know many who do have exactly that situation. Now, the, the, uh, the only thing that I'm, why I'm bringing this out is that quite often uh, a guy will write a book about his own personal sex problems, and it will be hailed 
as an important step forward in the analysis of man's eternal battle with sex. Oh, no. I don't think that any, uh, that one man's analysis, one man's analysis, bears much relationship to the population at large. Because the, the, the events, the things that go to make up each our individual lives, ultimately create a specific condition that is you. And uh, whatever that condition is, is you. It's nobody else. And, and people can live in the same house for 30 years. Uh, two brothers, for example, twin brothers, and be drastically different at the end of that 30 years because of these life processes, which are there. Now, uh, excuse me, this is, <laughs> this is an extremely dull show tonight. But, uh, no, I, 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 just, I just wonder, though, I, I'm just, I envy people who can, I, I really secretly envy people who can, who can believe in the simple solutions. It must be a happier life. A guy who can put a button on his lapel that simply says what he believes in is a guy who doesn't believe in very much. <laughs> and hence, he's a happy man. He doesn't, you know, he's never confronted with the, with the contradictions to his beliefs or anything. It's a simple slogan. Uh, I've often wondered how, how, how you get to the state of mind where you can believe that great ephemeral, uh, that great ephemeral evil of our time, you know, the great King Kong of our life today society, how you can blame society for everything that's going wrong in your life and in your city, must be nice. And I might say this, that since this is a prevailing view today, anybody who takes that view in print or in film will automatically be popular, because he's taking the popular view, simply popular. How many times have you seen movies where, where there's the evil society generally represented by, quote, the other generation? And uh, there's the beautiful uh, person, and he is being destroyed by all those evil ones. This is all in caps. This is a continuing, recurring theme in our films and in our books and plays today. And they almost are always successful. Because everybody sitting in the audience always identifies with the beautiful one. Because he, too, believes that he's been destroyed by society kind of nice to feel that. But I envy you if you can feel that. Because it, it, it takes you off the hook. It's real, must be real nice. And uh, speaking of nice things, friends, we got Mandarin with us tonight. Let's, let's do a couple of spots here. And uh, for any of you who are coming into the weekend thing here in New York, listen, I, I'd like to uh, recommend one of the best restaurants in town. I don't know whether you know anything about Craig Claiborne of the Times, but... Uh, when this guy hands out three stars, this is one of the highest ratings that a restaurant can get from the food editor of the Times. And he's given that three-star rating to Mandarin East, which is a great restaurant on 2nd Avenue between 57th and 58th Streets. It's uh, right up to on there, right off of, off of uh, 57th. In fact, you just go up to 57th and about a half a block uptown on 2nd Avenue. You'll see it there on the west side of the street beautiful, beautiful Chinese restaurant, and they specialize in those, if you've ever had uh, Chinese food from the province of Setsuan, which is extremely hot Chinese food, very fiery Chinese food, and they use a lot of nuts and things in it. It's great food. And this is Mandarin East on 2nd Avenue between 57th and 58th Street. And if you're downtown, the Mandarin House, which is run by the same people, is on West 13th Street between 6th and 7th, and they have a big 
garden and you can eat outdoors and have a groovy time. The food, too, down there is spectacular. Mandarin East and Mandarin House, okay? Now, uh, I don't know, you know, I, I just, uh, uh, thinking about conquest's law, I, uh, I'm, no, I've, I've really thought about that a great deal, and that's why what made me think about it so much was last year, I rarely talk about personal experiences I've had in, in things, but last year I had the chance to teach a course, and I was teaching a course on communications in one of the universities here, and, and the thing that hit me was quite obviously I was, I was, uh, I was really in the wrong place because I knew too much about communications. It had been my life and my work and, and uh, my whole existence has been built on it, and I've achieved a fair measure of recognition in the field. Uh, and I'm not saying that for any other reason except to say that I know something about the field. And I had, I had a feeling that, that this knowledge is resented uh, because to people who, who, who wish to say things about any field, and uh, especially if you're in the professorial area, you want to be able to say the broad, indicting things, the things which, which are exciting to hear. Uh, you want to pinpoint villains. Uh, and, the, and the villains are always, the, the villains are either uh, uh, such amorphous things as Madison Avenue. My God, I don't even know anybody on Madison Avenue. <laughs> I haven't had I haven't had a Madison Avenue man ever tell me what to say and what not to say. This is a, but this is one of the great cliches that keeps repeating itself over and over again. Uh, and so, when you know something about a thing, you find you're, you're constantly at odds with people who keep popping off about it, uh, who keep saying things about it. Who, who and and uh, maybe conquest law is right. In fact, I know it's right. I, I, I suspect that most people who do know... Now, for example, if I don't know what your field is as a person, but I suspect that if I began to make broad generalizations about your field, you would immediately begin to argue, well, now, wait a minute, you don't know anything about this and that, you don't, you don't understand this, and you'd be right. You'd simply be right. Have you noticed that in, in, uh, in all these constant talk shows about... Uh, about uh, politics, you rarely see a political scientist. You always see a columnist. And how many people know what the background of the columnist is? I mean, what what what's his uh, background uh, as a as a political scientist? Who knows? But that's not the point. You see, in in a time where conquest law is largely ignored, <laughs> so so we. Uh, we continually, we continually, and I suspect this is one of the reasons why we're always going to be disappointed in our country with the people who get elected. Because we generally elect guys on slogans. And that's a fact. We can't help it. It's a fact. End the war or not end the war. Or bring peace or uh, clear up the slums. Any one of a thousand slogans, you know. Restore our life to a good, beautiful quality. Uh, and these... These things are, are great. I mean, we rush out, we vote for somebody on that premise. But then the, the poor guy who gets in, he then immediately runs into this unbelievable complex mess, this melange of, of interlocking facts, which, of course, we don't know anything about, and we don't, really. Uh, a, a whole complex of things. And he finds himself, and I'm not excusing any politician, so don't assume that. I'm just simply saying whatever politician gets in, 
I noticed that a few years ago, when Jack Kennedy was elected, that the people were right away. Uh, how many of you remember that? That the that the liberal establishment, he wasn't in 10 minutes, and they were already disappointed with Kennedy's performance. It was only after he died that he became a, a great hero. Uh, but uh, that's something else again. But uh, I, I'm saying that, that, the, that, the, that the reality of the situation bears little relationship to the slogans that can be brooded about, about that situation. And uh, I guess that, that goes back to the original Shepherd's Law. <laughs> that... Uh, that the that the slogan is almost always 180 degrees out of phase with the reality of the situation. So if if a if a girl constantly whispers in your ear that she loves you, I'd be very suspicious of that. The more often she says it, the more I'd be suspicious. Because to say that in the guy's ear over and over again is a slogan. After a certain point, the first time it's said, it may be a statement of fact. But by the 34th time on any given weekend, then it becomes not a fact but a slogan. And she's probably trying to convince herself more than she's trying to convince you because she figures she's got you fooled. And that, <laughs> that works <laughs> for, for both sexes, you know. <laughs> and, and whenever a guy gets up on, on a stage, you know, and I see this so often times, I, I, I was so embarrassed the other day. Uh, some some writer was being interviewed on one of the talk shows and he's a seriously regarded writer I suspect that the more didactic and sloganeering you are about your writing the more seriously you'll be accepted and so he was being interviewed and he says well I only write I mean let those people write the popular things let this guy write what he wants about the revolution and so forth I simply want to write the truth <laughs> how's that for a beautiful slogan well, I've yet to find uh, anybody who can deal in truth. Because I suspect, like love, like beauty, truth is one of those great non-meaning words. It's just a word that's a kind of a lovely slogan in itself. And it is lovely. It has a lot of lace all over it. And it kind of has glowing qualities. You can see... You can see that the letters are faint blue and uh, kind of a life-giving warmth that comes out of it. <laughs> you, can, you can stand in front of it, you know, like you stand in front of a fire. and You can feel that vitality surging through your veins. Truth, beauty, love. Yeah. I suspect that that slogan could have been said, love means the inability to read Eric Siegel. <laughs>